I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. Uh, This week, we're going to be doing 10 questions, and this time we're going to do 10 questions with a parent who has lived through, uh, let's say vicariously lived through a substance use disorder through their kid. Uh, I believe I heard somebody once say it's a club that uh, no parent really wants to be in. So today we're sitting with Brent Swanson, and I love Brent. Brent's actually part of the Not My Child documentary that we made to take into communities to educate uh, families. So Brent, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and maybe give like a a couple minute rundown of kind of who you are and why you're here today. Sure. Thanks for having me today. Um, My oldest daughter, Kendall, uh, at 16, had her wisdom teeth pulled and when her wisdom teeth were pulled, they gave her an opioid for the pain, and she will tell you today that that really, for the first time, made her feel normal in her life. Um, she felt like she fit in, and as I've gone through this process, that's something I've heard over and over again from people that have such substance abuse disorders, and she really couldn't get a hold of any more of those because we were in control. We Uh, She had to see her doctors. We knew all of her doctors. We were involved in her life. When she was 18, she was in a car accident. And at that point, they gave her a huge bottle of pills. And it was all over from there. And we chased it for a long time from that point. We really didn't know how bad it was for a number of years because we didn't know all the signs to look for. And uh, there were so many little things as I look back now that we recognize. But uh, when she went to heroin, um, because she couldn't afford the pills any longer, uh, then it became pretty obvious that we had a major problem on our hands. And that lasted for probably a little over a year, um, that we chased that and were finally able to get her into treatment. And, uh, after several failed attempts, got her into a treatment that, that ended up working for her. And she was six years sober, uh, actually about two weeks ago, uh, she hit her six year anniversary. So, We've been through it, I've seen it, and uh, now we try and help other parents as they kind of navigate through this pretty difficult road. Yeah, and I have met your daughter, and she is a powerhouse when it comes to sharing her recovery and just her her zeal and appreciation for life. Yeah, thank you. You know, I I think that's what stood out whenever I met her is just, I mean, she has this permagrin, and a lot of people have a fake permagrin. She has this genuine permagrin and just this this passion that she always talks with. She's very, she's similar to you in her unapologetic description of what she went through. And I think what she went through helps make her the person she is today. And uh, quite honestly, I would never wish this on anybody, but it has actually, at the end of the program, with all the treatments she's gotten, everything, I think she will live a much fuller life than she ever would have if she didn't see this, I tell her all the time, you know, you learn a lot about life driving in the ditch. If you're on the road every day, right. you don't get nearly the experience you do spend a little bit of time in the ditch. Uh, the problem is you can't stay in the ditch. You got to get out of the ditch. And uh, she's been able to do that. Yeah, I'm glad she's out of the ditch. And I bet you are too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when you first recognized that there was a problem, how did you start to address it? 
Well, it was nothing we had ever seen before. So it was really kind of a total shock. And I think like a lot of parents, we start to rationalize away what's happening and it's going to go away. And you don't really realize the severity of what you're getting in the middle of and that how life threatening this really is. And it took us a while. And I didn't grow up around any kind of substance abuse. I had an amazing childhood. I had amazing parents that taught us to you know, respect other people, respect ourselves, all the things that we all want to impart on our kids. And we tried to do the same. And, and I think my initial feeling was, well, we just need to, you know, love her more and we can love this out of her or, or this is going to pass or whatever. And that's not how it works. And parents have got to realize that they're really dealing with something that can be um, life-threatening without a doubt. And we're fortunate we were able to navigate through that. But um, you know, we just tried to start reading as much as we could, getting on the internet, finding out as much information, and quite honestly, the more we read, the scarier it got. I can imagine. So, so where did you guys first start going in for? Uh, what am I trying to say? Where did you go for help and support? I mean, how did you know where to go? We really didn't. I mean, we had to kind of find it on our own. Um, we sought out a few friends. Um, you know, like most people, you're kind of worried about just announcing this to the world um, because you think they're just going to pull out of it. And it's best not to have everybody know they have this experience. Um, again, that's not how this works. Um, and people know anyway. So uh, we, we went to select friends that we know had been through similar experiences, um, maybe had experiences with their children. So we reached out to them, and some of them were reluctant to talk to us about it, um, and some fortunately were. And I think that's kind of where it really started and where we really began to see what, what we were dealing with and how, how big this problem really was. So they say that this is a, a disease that definitely impacts the entire family. So how did you uh, support yourself and your family emotionally? Um, you know, that was tough. Um, you know, I, I've never been a big crier, and all of a sudden it seemed like I, I'd see an ad for the Hallmark Channel, I'd lose it, you know. Um, I told somebody the other day that, you know, when the Hallmark Channel would come on, we'd have to pull the curtains and, and turn off the lights because if anybody saw me crying in there, they'd show up at the front door and dressed in black with dinner rolls and a, and a casserole. But it was really just starting to kind of reach out, find as much information as we could, begin to understand what the problem was. And then, I don't know, we really looked of what we could do for ourselves. We didn't look at it as a problem we had. We looked at it as a problem our daughter had. I know today that's not the case. Right. And it is really something that impacts the whole family. Um, we have a younger daughter as well. Um, and the impact on her was much more than we understood. Uh, and a lot of guilt there because she knew kind of things were starting to go bad, but didn't want to rat out her sister, her big sister, and wanted to be loyal and all those things, and, and then realized that she, she should have spoken up earlier. So it's certainly something to talk to your whole family about, have everybody involved in it. Uh, I know there's a lot of husbands and wives that end up splitting over this. It's so painful. It's such an, an amazingly emotional, difficult time that most people... Um, really struggle with that, and some just completely shut down. So something you talk about in the documentary that's always kind of stood out to me, you talk about, and it's not a question that we have, but I want to make sure it gets in here. You know what I mean? You talk about the three C's. Yeah. Would you kind of uh, 
break down those three th- three C's for uh, our listeners because I think it's really important. Yeah. Um, for parents to have better knowledge. I mean, literally, it's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast. Uh, it's why we made the documentary is I think that there's a lot of parents out there, and even though our parents are the first and last lines of defense for our kiddos, they are very ill-prepared to deal with substance use disorder. Um, I think they don't recognize it. We won't get into the it's a disease, it's a this, but I will say they don't recognize it for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I always say they don't recognize it as a disease. They think it's because of poor parenting or it, it happens to those other people or it's a moral weakness, moral failure. So when they have a kid that that is a straight-A student and plays basketball and football and goes to church twice a week, they sit there and think, well, this would never happen to my kid. I mean, I've raised them better than that. Yeah. So I think it, it hits them harder whenever Absolutely. it does because then they blame it on themselves. Yeah, they do. And I, and I think that, um, you know, there's certain things that we all go through. You know, um, I thought about the fact my daughter will never be able to have happy hour with us. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, really and truly, when you get all down to it, what's important in life, um, you know, that's such a small part of it. And and you think of the negative aspects of it. Um, I can tell you there's a lot of really good positive aspects to a good recovery. I've seen that. But that gets in the way of what you need to be able to do to help your child. And we certainly all look at, what did I do to cause this? I think that takes a little while to get to that point. You're really kind of in it pretty deep before you realize and start blaming yourself um, because you're trying to just understand what the heck's going on right here. What's, how, could, how could a substance control somebody like this? I just don't get it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never understand it. I'll never understand it. But I have learned to appreciate it. And I think that took a while to get to that point where I've learned to appreciate it. I but, um, you know, as far as the, the three C's go, you know, the first big one is you didn't cause it. And so after a while, you'll get to the point and you'll start going, what, what caused this? There has to be a reason that this happened. Right. Um, and, and you're not the reason. And you've got to get to the point where you understand that. And, and I do believe at, at a point um, that you're child or loved one's going to project that on you, that you caused it and, and you didn't. And you need to get past that because if you don't, you're going to do things that you really shouldn't be doing to try and help them, which is going to turn out to be enabling and help them continue on their, their process because you feel guilt yourself. So you didn't cause it. it this is something that, that really has nothing to do with you or what you did. I remember asking Kendall's counselor, you know, did I push her too hard in sports? Was I too hard on her to try and school? And she goes, Brent, this was going to happen. Um, I think opioids, I've got some personal opinion about that, speeds it along faster than other drugs um, because both the psychological and physical addiction aspects of that drug, but it was probably going to happen. Um, so you didn't cause it. Um you, you can't control it. Um, you know, anybody like me that's a fix-it kind of guy, and that's what I did in my job, you know, I could fix it. There was a problem, you address it, you figure out a solution, and you work on it. I, that isn't the way this deal works right. either. And it takes somebody, quite honestly, in my opinion, that has been through the process. I don't, I think... Uh, anywhere I would suggest anybody ever go for recovery. There are a lot of people that work there that are in recovery and maybe every one of them like where my daughter went. Um, They understand and don't just 
appreciate what what's going on. And um, so I think that that's really important to understand that you can't control this. You can't love it out of them. I think so many parents, and I, I was one of them, just, you know, I can love this out of her. She needs to know right. how much I care about her, how much how much we love her, what we're willing to do for her. And uh, all that's going to lead to is massive disappointment and additional pain on yourself if that's how you feel. And, and then the last thing is you can't cure it. Um, you know, I, I truly believe the only way this can be cured is through treatment, and it needs to be good treatment. It needs to be, they need to understand how to live their lives. They need to understand, they need to learn to love themselves, which just is an amazing thing to watch with my daughter today, of how she truly loves herself. She gives, she's at work every day, she does all the cool stuff, but she had to do that at the end of the day. I think we had to put her in a position to be able to, A, want that, um, and and B, to have the tools that she needed to live the rest of her life sober and um, in appreciation of what she's got. And anybody who listens to her today talk or talks to her is just like, wow, I want some of that. Yeah. You know, how do you get that? Because I want that. We all want what she's got, I'm telling you. We, you know, if we could all love ourselves unconditionally, I mean, man, you know how much life, easier life would be? Absolutely. <laughs> and I've seen that firsthand. So, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. That's right. And I bet as a parent, that's really difficult too. It is. Yeah. But when you get to the point where you understand that and you see that, uh, making decisions, good decisions, and knowing how to address this really kind of comes into focus. So, I, I you know, um, because you, you can continue to um, uh, contribute to it. There's really right. a 4C, and, and you need to figure out how not to do that. And I think that varies depending on the individual and the circumstances that are surrounding it. Yeah, I definitely uh, feel that there is a very, it's a tightrope tight walk between um, supporting, supportive boundaries and uh, the tough love that you hear about so often where you're just like, I'm going to cross you off if yeah. you don't do this. I think tough love is, you know, that's such a broad term. Um, and people have very um, specific ideas of what that means. And, you know, tough love is, to me, <clears throat> you know, not doing everything for your child. You know, uh, one, of the, one of the things I heard early in, in Kendall's recovery from, from recovery manager, who was, uh, Courtney, was absolutely amazing and certainly the person that led, started to lead Kendall out of this. Um, you know, she... she she told her that uh, I will, what was her line? I will, I will love you and be strong for you until you can do those two things for yourself. I mean, how, how awesome. That's that? awesome. But, but Courtney, she said, don't do for Kendall what she can do for herself. What great parenting advice. I got that from a 27-year-old, 28-year-old maybe. And I said, man, I wish I had met you earlier that would help because we tend to do everything for our right. kids today and are we really doing it for our kids or are we doing it for ourselves so we feel better about it because in tough love might mean watching them suffer a little bit you know they don't make the the baseball team and you know you sit down with them and say did you practice hard enough did you work right. hard enough it's not just the coach's fault there's there's usually contributing factors here and that's hard to see you'd much rather run down and blame it on somebody well the reality is maybe the blame's in the right place and so to me that's tough love and it's hard to watch and it's hard to sit there and and take but 
that's one of the things that I look at as I've gone through this. Yeah, I do think there's a, I, I saw a difference this weekend with my wife, with my daughter. Yeah. Uh, my daughter was at a friend's house playing and she came in and she'd skinned both her knees and her elbow and my wife's just like, ah! and I'm like, woohoo, you know, uh, we, we looked at it completely differently. Yeah. But to me, man, it's those times that you're falling. Yep. You know, uh, I remember having those all the time because I was outside engaged in stuff and my parents didn't treat me with baby gloves. That's right. You know, uh, Jim Marshall, uh, who's a father who lost his uh, son, I, Cody. I know Jim. He's an amazing guy. And he, he's got a nonprofit called uh, Cody's Gift where he goes into schools. But that's what he talks about is he's like, yeah. you know, kids don't have character. We don't teach them to lose. We try to save them from everything. That's right. Instead of letting them deal with life so they're not developing coping skills. Yep. And I think it's that lack of coping skills that make drugs a really attractive option. Yeah. You know, my life doesn't feel good enough, you know, and a lot of times it's maybe depression, anxiety. There's something there, trauma that's underlying. And what I found out is when my doctor prescribed this to me or when my buddy had me try this at a party, I felt like this is what I've been missing my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And and some of it's really hard, especially when you start getting into some of the legal issues that people face. Um, you know, early on, my daughter had a, a DUI at 18, and uh, the you know we were really lucky. That was the only legal issue she had, um, and you know we got into it. But I, I felt like she needed to suffer the consequences of that decision because if they never suffered the consequences of their decision to some extent, and you don't want it to be life altering for sure, right. but and it has been. I mean, it's been painful, but you know life's painful sometimes. Right. And I remember when she went into court. And we were standing outside, and she was about to walk in. She goes, aren't you coming? I go, no, I didn't do anything wrong. You're going to have to go in there with you, by yourself, you and your attorney, and, and, and face the judge. You know, right. This is your deal. You go, you go take responsibility for what you did. So you know, that's tough love to me. Right. So it, you know, everybody has their own definition of what that means. Yeah, I always tell parents, don't set a boundary that you can't live with the consequences of. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that that's where it gets really important. I, yeah, you can only count to three so many times. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, there's some, there's some report. I, I mean, there's kids whose parents have turned them in that have died while detoxing in jail because the jails didn't have the accurate setup to handle yeah. it. So our system is not working great. We There's definitely some more things we need to do to help yeah. create a better uh-huh. system. Well, yeah. there's no doubt. I mean, if you're into this as deep as my daughter was, there's decisions that you have to make. And when I talk to parents, I always tell them they're going to have to make their own decision. I say, here's what I did, but you're going to have to make your own decision because the reality is those decisions could lead to their death. Yeah. Potentially, you know, um, when we made the decision with our daughter, we, we decided what we were going to do, Shannon and I, we're going to make this as heavy burden as we possibly can. We're not going to make this easy. We're going to make it as heavy burden as we can. But we decided we wanted to have food and we wanted to have a roof over her head. So we would go over and actually physically pay her rent and we would take her food. We'd never give her any money or right. anything like that. So those were decisions that we made. Now, that could have led to all kinds of things. And as a father of a daughter, you know, some of those things I don't even want to think about. Um, and But what we decided is if we went on like we were right now, she was going to die. That our, that our percentage chances were much higher if we kept going with what we're doing right. versus setting these boundaries and saying, here's what we're going to do. She could have died after we set those boundaries, too, and we would have had to live with that. But I did think that our best opportunity and our best 
percentage chances to, to sit there and think we're playing the percentages with my daughter's life, but that's really what we did in our, in our opinion. So everybody right. has to make those decisions for themselves. Yeah. I, I tell parents all the time, I'm like, here's your options. I would never tell you what to do. And here's one of the biggest reasons why. If I tell you what to do and your kid dies, you're going to blame me. And you know what? That's not something I want. Yeah. I don't want you mad at me. So what I'm going to do is say, here's different options you have. What's going to work best for you? Because I don't know your family either. Yeah, I don't absolutely. know your dynamics. I don't know anything. So I think that's really smart. Yeah. You well, know, when you have somebody walking into your life saying, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, I'd find somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And everybody's situation is different. But uh, you do have to find the strength not to make a decision. And a lot of right. people put off making those decisions and just continue to go on. And, um, you know, the consequences of that can be bad, too. And it, 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 it sucks all the way around. I mean, it's just there, there aren't good decisions here. Right. It, but you have to make them, I think. Um, you can't just – for us, we couldn't just let it play out. We had to make some decisions on what we thought was the best way to handle it. So – and there's so many different options out there. Absolutely. You know, so – I mean, I'm going to ask this in kind of a two-part. Yeah. Because not only how did you begin to educate yourself about addiction and treatment options and recovery supports, but, I mean, what would you recommend based on your experience? If you've got a parent out there that wants to find out more, how would you recommend they educate themselves? I think you've got to go, you know, the best place is books, um, uh, you know, the Internet. There's just a wealth of information. You need to be careful there because a lot of, you know, recovery has become a big, big business. Um, some of them are so much better than others. Um, as we went through the process, I didn't want a country club. Uh, I didn't feel like that's what she needed. She didn't need somebody, you know, telling her how great she was and, and that, you know, all she needed all the time. <laughs> they need some of that for sure. Right. But, you know, she didn't need to be massaged and, and, and babied. She needed to learn how to live a life that, that, was totally different than the one she was living today. So um, we looked around at a lot of different places and decided after reading that we needed to have a women's only facility. So I think if you have, you, it needs to be gender specific to, to your child, um, whether it be male or female, they share better females with females, males right. with males. I think that's really important. Um, for us, uh, a structured 12 step process um, made sense to me. I didn't know anything about the 12 steps, um, but I knew some people that I had spoken to that it had worked for them. Um, uh, you know, my daughter is a very spiritual person, but not a over-the-top religious kind of person. And um, so while she meditates and does all this right. stuff, you know, she's... so. And I know for some people that's the way to go. Um, you know, I hadn't been exposed, quite honestly, to um, medi medically assisted. Um, you know, Kendall didn't go into that program. I, you know, that scared me initially. I, it was medicine that got her here. I was afraid to get right. back into the middle of that. She tried Suboxone here in town, and, and that didn't work for her. She just started abusing that. And so, but I know that's worked for a lot of folks. So my whole... The last six years, really, what I've tried to do is learn and learn more. And so I've learned a lot more. But um, certainly where we put her uh, in Texas was exactly what she needed. And it's a very structured environment. They have, she was inpatient. Um, 
you know, and, and sometimes it's hard to say this because I know a lot of people can't do this with their child and it just, it hurts me every day to think about that. But she was in treatment for, for three months in Minnesota, for a month in Minnesota, and then went to Texas and was in, in resident treatment for four months and then lived in a sober house for six months. Um, so she was, she was in treatment for almost a year and, um, and still to some extent, I think they're in treatment the rest of their lives, you right. know, going to meetings and doing different things. But, um, now she works in that industry, so she gets a lot of exposure to it, but it was really just reading and trying to figure out what we thought would work best for our daughter. Okay. And you guys had even like a recovery coach in there during the residential and stuff. So, I mean, you've already kind of touched on it, but, but what are some of the... So you talked about those things that you think were effective and why. So, I mean, that's a question, but you kind of just answered it. I mean, you're getting ahead of me here. So. Uh, I've never, nobody's ever complained about me not talking too much. (laughs) So being in a structured environment. Absolutely. Um, Maybe going to a place that wasn't local. I think that's important. I think if you come back to the same environment that, you were in with the same people. You're gonna your chances are relapsed or or go up substantially. I think being somewhere else and and we kind of anticipated. You know, everybody wants their kid to live next door to them or around them. Um, we were more concerned of what's gonna save her life. And and when when she got to Austin and had a bunch of friends coming out of this. Austin's a great recovery community in general. Employers don't hesitate about hiring people that are in recovery. And, um, you know, so she ended up just loving Austin and it's a great young people's town and, um, had lots of friends. So she's got a huge support group and, you know, if she had issues, she had people she could turn to immediately. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm kind of jealous of Austin. I'm hoping to build something (laughs) like that here. We're working on it. Yeah. You know, um, well, so you, you've got a few people that have come from there that are back here now. I, you know, I think um, somebody told me the other day we've had 17 people that have followed my daughter to the recovery center in Austin, and, and a number of them have come back. So, you know, hopefully they continue to, to spread the word about what a real good recovery looks like. Yeah. Yeah, and that's important. I'm big on, uh, we say, uh, recover out loud. Yeah. You know, I think uh, we, we need to, to be really loud about our recovery because the media is really loud about everything negative about substance use disorders yeah and i don't think a lot of people see what recovery is or what it looks like there aren't and you you know you see these recovery trolls that say these horrible things and i you know man i'll tell you what i'd stack my daughter up and a whole lot of her friends up against any of those guys and go all right who do we want to have stick around in this world you know and uh so it's 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 tough it really is i and a, a real quick story and and uh, you know when when we were going through this process I'm kind of always been a person that's kind of shared my life anyway and um, you know you find out who your friends are and and who you can trust and who who's really there for you and thinks about you I had a really good friend one time we were playing golf and he knew I was struggling he walked up and he said I just want to tell you he said you're a really good parent and that's all he said and he went up and teed off and I thought man I needed that <laughs> You know, just little things like that right. that you can do for your friends that might be going through this are, are just so much bigger than you could ever imagine. But um, <clears throat> Kendall got hep C from the needles when she was using heroin, and um, that was something we didn't share with anybody. And I guess the stigma of hep C or whatever it was. Right. So, 
you know, I certainly fell prey to the whole stigma deal myself. And, and uh, so she went through it and she ended up getting on Harvoni after battling the insurance company for three months. And, and after 12 weeks of that, she's, she went in and she's Pepsi free and she called us up and told us, and, you know, we were really excited because that was something that really bothered me a lot, you know, having my daughter have a, a disease that could kill her again on top of just getting her through this. And, uh, so she, uh, she posted on Facebook and I went, Oh my God. You know, I saw it about two hours after she posted and I saw it and we hadn't told anybody. And she's, a lot of our friends follow her on Facebook and I went, Oh, and so I got this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach and shame on me. But so I called her up, you know, and kind of calmed down. I said, Kendall, do you really want to have this out on Facebook? You know, and we really hadn't talked about that. And she said, dad, I posted that about two hours ago and I just had a friend. I am me that said, I too have hep C. I've had it for a year and a half. I've been afraid to tell anybody. I haven't gone anywhere. I just called and made a doctor's appointment after reading your post. Thank you for leading the way. All right, let's go. (laughs) You're like, I get it. So it was kind of, you know, came out of the bunker and said, you know, we're going to share it all and maybe somebody will get something out of it and save their life. Yeah, that's one thing that I do appreciate. I, I appreciate your voice. Because I know for a lot of parents, it's difficult for parents to come out too. Because there Extremely is difficult. a lot of judgment, and I don't judge those parents that don't. And and I get it. I understand it. I hope they can find the peace that I found to be able to do it. But really, my daughter is the one who said, "Dad, you can either join me or you can sit over there in your foxhole." And I went, <laughs> right. All right. Let's go. Yeah, I remember hearing uh, Rock, uh, one of the Kennedys speak. Uh, I think Patrick is in recovery. And uh, he's like, you know, he said a lot of people ha- had an option to remain anonymous. He's like, I never had that option. Yeah. So she didn't really give you much of an option either. No, right? she I mean, didn't. She's she didn't. like, you can either talk about it or not talk about it, but people are going to know. Well, and I'm glad she didn't. There's 17 people from my local community. Um, I, I talked to a parent the other day that came from another parent I'd talked to eight months ago, and they called up and talked about their daughter, and, and uh, uh, I sent him a interview that Kendall did. Uh, at Missouri State, a little eight-minute interview, and uh, he told me that that's the reason she she listened to that, and that's why she decided to get recovery. So here we touched somebody in Chicago that I've never met, don't know anything about, and she decided to go get help after listening to my daughter's interview. I mean, you yeah, know, powerful. how many how many twenty-seven-year-olds get to do that? Yeah. Maybe maybe save somebody's life, and that's not the first. So it's you know if we'd all just <coughs> speak up, and it's you know. <laughs> stuff happens right you know it's it's life life happens and you either can hide from it or you deal with it so you tend to be pretty positive so i'm gonna ask you another question that, that's gonna make you look at maybe the negative side yeah but what's something that you try you know what are some things you tried that maybe didn't work and why do you think they weren't effective well we certainly tried to love it out of her and that doesn't work i've kind of addressed that and and uh you know you think it's you're going to grow out of it or uh, that it's going to change or you know all those kinds of things and and it's not it it you're going to have to address it you're going to have to deal with it you're going to have to um get them into treatment or something's going to happen right and and i think there's people that get better you know maybe don't use as much and but they're never going to enjoy the life like my daughter has uh, and you have until they truly recover. Right. You know, I, I, it's kind of, you, there's a lot of semi-recoveries out there. 
uh, and I know a few. And if you want to truly recover, then then you're going to have to go all the way. So I kind of learned that. You know, I thought maybe we can. This is going to take care of itself at some point, and it won't. So, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of things that you learn along the way. Absolutely. Yeah, I, <clears throat> there's a huge difference between abstinence and recovery. Yeah. So it's definitely possible to not be using and still have a completely miserable life. Absolutely. You know, I heard somebody joke once, and they're like, what happens when you, when, when, when you take a drunken horse thief and you get him sober? He becomes a better horse thief. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so you really haven't fixed the problem. No, you really haven't. And, and and it's definitely an underlying issue. You know, you may get over the physical addiction, but the mental addiction and the mental issues uh, are still there. And then they start trying to cover them up with, you know, antidepressants and all kinds of different things. You know, Kendall was, was on antidepressants um, for a few years before all this happened. And, of course, as most people who are opioid addicts, you know, Xanax and all, you know, all those kinds of things start to creep into the, to the whole process. Um, today, she didn't take anything. She's, she's not anything. And, you know, she calls me at 7.30 in the morning on the way to work, and she's hey, what's going on? And it's like, God, Kendall, can you, man, it's kind of early. <laughs> you know, and just right. every day she's just excited about living another day. And it's just, I mean, it's amazing. It's That's amazing. Awesome. And her sister, the, the two of them have reconnected. You know, that was such a difficult thing. And, and we, I think, I think the, uh, I, I think the, your kids, you know, the other the brothers and sisters um, really get lost in this process and can be horrible for them. Um, my youngest daughter was a, uh, a freshman at Mizzou when Kendall was at the height of her addiction and then, you know, finally went in in, in April of Haley's freshman year. And, um, you know, Haley wrote a blog recently and she said, you know, I, I was trying to prepare myself for the phone call from my parents that my sister had died. And they're two and a half years apart. That's intense stuff. Wow. And to be dealing with that at 18 years old, your first year in college. And, you know, Haley was an extremely good student and and uh, had the worst semester of her entire career from elementary school on through was that freshman year. And uh, it really, really affected her much more than we realized, you yeah. know. Um, we were so focused on our other daughter that, you know, sometimes you've really got to stop and say, you know, I need to make sure that I'm taking care of everybody, including yourself. Right. So, and we've already talked about boundaries. That's the next question. Uh, how do you set, uh, how, how do you set healthy boundaries? But I mean, you already kind of talked about it and what's healthy for you yeah. as a parent with your kid may not be healthy for another parent with their kid. Yeah. I think a lot of it depends on. You know, how they were brought up, what they're used to, what their experiences are. You know, somebody um, told me once, actually, the, the lady who runs uh, the facility Kindle went to, there's a dramatic difference, too, when people come into recovery. You know, if you've had very um, difficult situations, traumatic experiences in your life, you recover differently than somebody like my daughter who really didn't have any traumatic experiences in her life. Um, and when they come out of it, into recovery, they have a lot of great memories, they have a lot of family, they have a lot of things to fall back on. People who've had a traumatic experience have still have to deal with all of that. And so that's a little bit different situation than we went through. So while there's so many things in common about the whole process, I think there's a lot that right. can be very different depending on individual situations. Absolutely. So what do you wish you'd have known back then that you know now? Oh, man. You know, I, I, 
there's no way I would have known it all back then. I've come to that realization. Right. So that makes it easier for me and, I, and, and takes some of the blame away maybe where I realize I've had to do a lot of study and I've had to do a lot of things to learn what I have today and the experience. I, you know, I wish I would have known how dangerous this is and, and how bad this is and the first time it happened that I jumped on it faster than thinking it would just go away. Um, or think it's just a kid doing their thing kind of deal. Um, you know, I, I needed to ask some questions. I wish when the first time she took that first opioid that I would have known how did that make you feel, how, you know, and know what the difference is between what I do feel like, which is my stomach hurts and I hate them and get off them as fast as I can, right. and her feeling the sense of belonging and normalcy. Um, I, I hear over and over people that... Uh, use drugs and alcohol or any substance abuse are um, they do it to feel normal they don't do it to get high which is what the general public thinks were is all going on is everybody's just doing it so they can get high I want to feel normal um, which is something again I don't understand but I hear that over and over again so uh, those kinds of things and been able to watch for that and and realize what all that means I wish I would have known that a little bit better um, I wish I would have questioned my doctor a little bit more about what are the alternative pain medications that we can have and try versus do we really need to give them an opioid? Um, right. How about Tylenol-3? I didn't grow up with opioids. So it can be done. I mean, they call it pain for a reason. And a society today feels like, you know, you should be completely numb to everything. Well, sometimes stuff hurts, you know. And You know, I was reading an article about a lady who had moved to Germany. Yeah. And uh, she was getting ready to have an operation where they were cut through the abdominal wall. Yeah. And she asked the doctor, what are you going to give me for uh, pain? And he said, well, we'll give you a local during the surgery. And she's like, yeah, but when I leave, you know, because she was an ex, what are they called, yeah. expatriates? Yeah. So she had lived over here until she retired. And she was like, no, I mean, for the pain, what are you going to give me when I leave here? And he was like, well, you can cycle ibuprofen and aspirin. Yeah. And she was like, but what if it really starts hurting? She was like, I mean, I, I want a prescription for that. And, and, and he sat there and wrote something out and handed it to her. And, and it said a cup of tea. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean a cup of tea? And he's like, pain after an operation is your body's way of telling you you are overdoing it. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and, and get off your feet. Yeah. You know, here it seems like, and yes, there's definitely some people that need pain medication. Absolutely. But we're 5% of the world's population. We, pre, You know, I've seen different studies that say we prescribe somewhere between 70 to 90% of the world's opioids yeah. are prescribed here. Yeah. So obviously there's an issue. Yeah. And I, I do think, you know, it's important, and I keep hearing it over and over again as I listen to people talk about this subject, you know, they want to just take my, my pain pills away. And man, that's the last thing I want to do is somebody who really needs these drugs. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to suffer. Right. I mean, that's crazy. And, and if this is what they have to have, so long as they understand that they are going to be physically addicted and how to get off the physical addiction right. of that drug, um, you know, I, it's personal choice. I, right. You know, I feel like Explore your options, but if that's your only option and that makes your life bearable, then we need to be careful and not take that away from people um, because that will just hurt the overall um, idea of helping people that have substance abuse disorders. That, that kind of muddies that water dramatically and you know we always have a tendency to over overdo it you know you know we go right. ditch to ditch instead of kind of 
really getting back on the road for a little while and seeing which way we ought to turn. We have a tendency to go ditch to ditch. So Yeah, I know that we're trying to educate doctors better so that they can yeah. have those intentional conversations with yeah. their but patients. But we don't want to scare the doctor to prescribing these drugs. You know, at this point, that. if we don't have alternatives, yeah. if they if that patient does not have an alternative to that and is living with long-term chronic pain, they just, you know, that doctor should not be hindered to help them, but don't give them more than they need because I can tell you where they're going to end up. Right. And, and I definitely, I mean, I just got through t- doing a, a in-service training for 650 people that work at an organization that's the largest provider of palliative uh, and uh, hospice care. Yeah. And that's what they talked about is literally they've had people that have died by suicide because their doctors have sat there and had a knee-jerk reaction and took them off the medication that was giving them a better quality of life. You know, so, yeah. That's crazy. And that's that's horrible. I mean, that, that, that should not happen. And like I said, we have a tendency to go ditch to ditch instead of really assessing where we are. And um, I, I, I think it's important. We need those people with chronic pain that, to be on our side to help people that are trying to seek recovery from, from these drugs as well. And so Absolutely. I don't want to alienate that group for sure. So and now uh, down to the last question. We're going to save the toughest for last. <laughs> if you had a parent sitting in front of you right now and they thought their kid might be go you know what, I think my kid is using, what would, what would you tell them just sitting right in front of you? Well, probably the first thing I'd tell them is that if you think they're using, they are. I bet you would agree with that. Yes. And, and the second thing is, it's worse than you think. As a matter of fact, it's worse than you can possibly imagine. Um, I have not yet talked to a parent that hasn't been through this got to that point and said, it's just pot, it's just this, it's just that. And then they get drug tested and they go, oh my gosh, we had no idea there's opioids involved, there's Xanax involved, there's Zoloft, there's all these other drugs that are, you know, involved in the process. That happens, well, I can tell you it's been 100% of the time in my experience so far. Right. So I think it's important you come to grips with that. Uh, If you think they're using, they are. And... The other thing is that you have got to understand that this might very well be life-threatening and you need to treat it that way and and get on it immediately um, and have it have have some kind of an assessment quick and then have a plan of what you're going to do to attack it. Well, I want to thank you for your time and I want to end with something that I'll probably say numerous times, but it's in my head today. Uh, because I just did an interview yesterday and was at a summit where they uh, quoted the statistic yesterday. I think a lot of times people look at it as, especially with their kids, they look at it, well, it's just a little beer, it's just a little weed. I did that when I was younger. And based on the research, if we can... if a kid, if we can keep a kid from drinking or smoking weed or doing those things until they're 18, they're 90% less likely to develop a substance use disorder. Wow. And to me, that's a huge, huge, yeah. huge statistic. It is. So I know it might be a, a, a passage of life that, that a lot of people think um, because, well, I drank beer. Yeah. I drank beer in high school, so it's okay if my kids do. Just remember, I bet you drank beer in high school. I did. And I bet you didn't develop a substance use disorder. I didn't. But your daughter did. So yeah. just because you don't have it 
doesn't mean that it can't impact your family. Very true. So thank you very much for your time, Brent. I appreciate it. And uh, we will be back on here next week. We appreciate you guys listening, and y'all have a blessed week. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. Do you like pop culture? I do. <laughs> I wasn't talking to you, Andrew. Oh. If you enjoy movies, television, all that kind of stuff, uh, we have a lot of fun on Sif Pop Podcast, part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. So you can come check us out every week. You can listen live or just download it to your podcast feed. Every single week, Aaron breaks down the newest movies that are big in theaters, and I make funny noises. (laughs) You could probably pick one of those that you would like. You can join us every weekend live by looking at Spreaker.com slash Studio DNA, or you can find us in your podcast player of preference by searching for Sift Pop.